Why not become a My Perfect Console Patreon supporter? For just $5 a month, you will get your episodes early and ad-free. You'll get access to the members-only My Perfect Console Community Lounge. You'll receive guest announcements exclusively before the general public. You can pitch questions to future guests, download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions, and vote in the annual My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition coming later in 2023. Hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and become a supporter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a Canadian-American actor for video games, television and film. Born in Labrador in Canada, she soon moved to Alabama in the United States, where as a teenager she began working as a commercial voice-over artist for radio. After graduating from Alabama School of Fine Arts, she took on voice roles to fund her dream of becoming a professional musician. Soon, however, the acting took over. 
After securing some roles in regional TV series, she moved to Los Angeles. There, a part in the cartoon Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego brought her into the world of video games, where she quickly became one of the world's most sought-after performers. In 2011, the New Yorker described her as a kind of Meryl Streep of the form, and her roles, which number more than a 100, include that of Samus Aran in the Metroid Prime trilogy, Naomi Hunter in Metal Gear Solid, Commander Shepard in the Mass Effect games, and the character Ash in Overwatch. Welcome, Jennifer Hale. Thank you, Simon. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really good to meet you. I, um, I mean, I've spent, I feel like I've spent many weeks in your company, <laughs> but uh, that's with you in, in a variety of different roles, yeah. I guess. Yeah. You know, and that, that introduction I read out barely, barely touches the range of projects you've been involved in, your IMDb pages intimidatingly long. <laughs> Which role do you receive the most comments about from people that appreciate your work? You know, Lots and lots of them, which is such a wonderful thing. I think Mass Effect has had such a deep impact on many, many people. Mm -hmm. So they speak widely about that one. But so many. Metal Gear. I mean, gosh, a lot of the cartoon stuff, too. <laughs> totally spies, is, is uh, ironically. And it, it always blows my mind how many how many um, people who identify as male really love that mm -hmm. um, that show, which is so great. And, you know, and all the Marvel stuff. I've done tons and tons of Marvel stuff. So... It's kind of a, it was kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, we should mention you're Cinderella as well, aren't you? I have been the voice of Cinderella since 1995. Yes, yes. Which uh, I mean, with this range of characters, all kinds of different people. You've got, you know, you mentioned Commander Shepard, their very militaristic leader, mm. and then Cinderella, who I guess is pretty much the opposite of that, maybe. Yeah. She's a warrior in her own way. Right, sure, <laughs> sure. Sorry, no no shade yeah. on Cinderella. <laughs> Did you see Ralph Breaks the Internet? <laughs> that glass slipper looked really threatening. <laughs> yeah, But uh, I guess which uh, character do you, do you personally look most fondly on? You know, either because you connected with the writing or because the yeah. experience around creating that character has been enjoyable. You know, your, your point there is a good one for me. It's so much about the writing and the team. Um, and the experience of actually putting the game, bringing the game to life in that way. But I, there's no way I can pick a single one. What I will say is the number one favorite thing about my career is the variety. Yeah. Just the crazy, beautiful amount of variety I've been able to to play is just the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you're working quite often on these really big blockbuster video games that are you know, I guess highly sensitive because they're worth lots of money to the people who are working on them. So I guess that means that you don't always get loads of time to read over the scripts before you're in a booth, much like you are today. Um, you know, how, how do you navigate that sometimes, you know, getting reams of dialogue that you've only just seen a few minutes earlier? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I, I do want to say is that one thing I've noticed is that it doesn't matter the size of the budget or the team or any of it. They're so... These games are so precious and so important and so deeply invested in by every single person doing them. Mm. You know, I think of several of the indie titles that I have the privilege to work on and all that, and that's just a very striking thing for me. To your point, one thing I don't think people realize is that it used to be 95% of the time. Now it's about 85% of the time our acting in games is cold reading. We don't get the script ahead of time. And if we do, it's an Excel spreadsheet. There is, with just our lines, there's no context there. There's not a volume for us to read. We really have to go on the fly. If I look at something like 
mass effect, that was entirely cold reading. And there was no looking at anything ahead of time. And in Mass Effect 1, we had paper scripts, so I could at least flip ahead in the pages and start to get a sense of what was happening. But by the time we got to Mass Effect 2, they had a, a re, you know, very ecologically aware and um, handy system that had everything electronically controlled. And I simply had a touch screen in front of me, but I couldn't advance the pages. The people in the booth advanced the pages. So it literally was like, there's a line and do it. There's a line and do it. You know, and that's where we really, really rely on members of the team who I think are don't get nearly enough recognition, which is our voice director. They provide context. They provide moments. They guide and make sure that what we're doing as actors is going to be the rightest way to do it for that moment in the story and the ex- game experience. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's a big ask for you, <laughs> walking in cold and having to inhabit this character that maybe mm-hmm. people are going to spend 60, 70 hours with, maybe even longer if they're playing all three Mass Effect games back to back. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, did, I, you know, did you get any, you say that you get some direction on particular lines, like perhaps, you know, oh, you're feeling, fr- your character is feeling frustrated when she says this or whatever, but, you know, do you get that broader picture of who this person is or what their motivations might be? Absolutely. I mean, the best voice directors, they'll set the scene for you because, you know, in directing, it's it's kind of, uh, it's very difficult when a director says, okay, be angry now, be be happy now. Because as one of my favorite teachers ever, Jeff Corey, said, you know, real human beings don't set out to feel things. They set out to do things in the course of which they have feelings they don't want to have. <laughs> So uh, uh, those great directors who set the scene for you, who set the tone for you, who give you the detail of context, not only about what's happening right that moment, but what's come before that informs what's happening in that moment. But they do it very efficiently. They give you just the right amount of information and they know when to get off the button. (laughs) Because some people continue to talk long after they've inspired you and you lose that spark of inspiration and you have to kind of recreated after the fact. Right, right. You know, it, I was str- struck by something when you were asking the question, which is, for me, voice acting, and especially acting in games, is acting on steroids, right? Like, when I do on-camera stuff, when I do film, when I do television, I have a set. I have a human being to talk to. <laughs> I get to walk around and, like, mm. be in the moment fully, you know, in That's that it. way. Um, and when we're in the booth, you know, my my mouth can't leave this sort of three inch cube that sits here that is perfectly placed a certain distance from the microphone and to that end what i wear is like this jacket i have on right now it's it's very quiet no nylon no brush cotton you know no silk none of that stuff is that is that what you're looking for when you go shopping then you're trying oh, to like yeah, i listen i listen <laughs> listen to i'll rub clothes. the clothes and i go oh i can't wear this at work Am I ever going to get any use out of it otherwise? No, I'm not going to buy it. You know, <laughs> I get, if I really love it, I'll get it anyway for that one time I get to wear it. But yeah, I forget. I come down here. I think it was, I'd been traveling. So I'd been off for, you know, a week or two. And I came down here and I had on some hiking pants. And I was like, what am I thinking? And I literally could not move my lower body for the entire session, which is so inconvenient. Because when we're acting, we're moving our whole body. Like mm. right now, I'm, I'm moving my whole body. <laughs> but I'm not making any noise and I'm not leaving that sweet spot, you know. Um, anyway, that's quite the tangent. But it really is acting on steroids because you have to create the entire scene for yourself. I, I spend every session in here stacked up with imaginary friends who all have to be placed in the right spot on the other side of my microphone. Otherwise, I'm going to turn off mic and screw everything up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Amazing. 
So I mentioned in the intro that um, the New Yorker magazine profiled you in 2011. They was written by previous guests of the show and a friend of mine, Tom Bissell. This is a section... And a brilliant, um, wonderful human being who I miss so much. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's wonderful. <laughs> this, is, um, this is a section from that piece describing what Tom saw when he watched you performing in the booth. So it seems appropriate as you're talking, describing that. So he wrote, because of the non-linearity of the dialogue, she had to be vigilant about letting feeling from one line spill over into another. Hale performed with an intensity that she could apparently summon at will. She seemed to immerse herself, often looking around maniacally, her teeth bared in primate agitation. How do you how do you summon those kind of feelings at will? And then I guess, you know, to Tom's point as well, then dispose of them so quickly so that you can give the next line in a completely different state of emotion. That is the craft. That is the craft. I liken it to learning to play something like tennis, where you've got to throw the ball up, you've got to time it, you've got to hit it just so, you've got to move your feet in a certain way, and it all has to happen in flow in order to have the optimal game. And it's very similar. You know, we all start with, those of us who choose acting, start with the basics of acting. Who am I? What do I want? Who am I talking to? What's this character like? Which pieces of me (laughs) go on the shelf when I'm playing this character? And what additional things do I need to turn up, bring in, etc.? You know, you just tend to all those details. And in the beginning, I used to, I remember I was was doing a movie the week and I was playing Rod Steiger's daughter, which was so intimidating. He was an Academy Award winner and brilliant, brilliant human being, like extraordinary. And I sat down with my script in the beginning and I wrote pages of backstory, pages of backstory for this character, you know, based on what what the script would refer to, like what was this event? And I would make myself write it out. Now, this is just the way I work. Everybody does it their own way, mm-hmm. you know? But back then, this was how I worked. I came, I went to a fine arts high school. I was trained in Stanislavski. I was trained in, you know, the Uta Hagen stuff. I did so much Shakespeare, I never wanted to see it again. You know, like just so trained in all these methods and rules. And I'm I'm wired to, quote unquote, get it right, which is <laughs> deadly for the creative professions. But it served me in this way. I wrote out tons of backstory. And then in between the lines, I would write out my subtext, all the stuff I... Because the reason I did this is because when I went to put the scene up on its feet, I had that weird, empty, disconnected feeling. And I hate that feeling. That feeling leads to playing ideas. It leads to playing emotions. And that is a serious shortchanging of that writer. I will not do that. So I'm like, oh, I'm missing my details. So I wrote out my details because writing them out for me, you know, sometimes I just imagine them, whatever. I filled in my details. And then when I got there on the day, I learned one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my acting life. I had all this stuff planned. I had like the beats identified, like all the stuff they teach you at acting school. Had it all written out. Did my rehearsals with Rod Steiger, you know, and I, in the scene, I was, I was really mad at him because he'd been gone, but I run down the steps and I gave him a hug, right? So I run in the rehearsals, I come down the steps, I'm all like, oh, I'm mad at you. And I give him a hug and blah, blah, blah. And we rehearse. And then we go to film. <laughs> I run down those steps the way that we rehearsed it and Rod Steiger turns his shoulder in and body blocks me and I go spinning off of him only like a foot or two away I'm still in frame and I was livid. <laughs> I was like that is not and I went oh my god he just handed me a gift because that's exactly what the scene was about and I was like I just learned something so important which is do all your homework and then freaking let it go <laughs> when I first moved to LA I was in my 20s, and I was so <laughs> angsty, 
because I wanted to be really great at this. I wanted to do brilliant work. I wanted to do it so well. And I was like, I'm just not doing it well. <laughs> and I got this very, very lucky, you know, very fortunate smack upside the head from the universe. It literally felt like a, you know, an invisible just, hey, smack. Hey. And I was like, and I listened. And they're like, just stop. You do the best you can with the learning you have at the time. Yeah. And you bring your humanity in, which is another piece of this. I advocate that um, therapy is an excellent and essential tool for, I will say, I'll venture to say most. I'm not here to tell everybody what to do. I would say most actors will greatly benefit from it because, I mean, yes, I don't know how many of us chose this because we had killer, healthy home lives. You know, I don't know that many killer, healthy home lives. But um, because as, as, an act, as an acting performer, you are representing, you may be called upon to represent all kinds of aspects of humanity. And if you don't truly know them within yourself, you're going to play an idea of them. Mm. And in order to know them within yourself, you have to be comfortable accepting those pieces of you. We don't have to. You don't have to do anything. But it helps a lot to have fully embraced all the pieces of humanity, the places where you're an a-hole, the places where you drop the ball, the places where you're fabulous, the places where you're kind, the places where you were a jerk. Like, they all, we all do all that. Mm. We do it all. Every one of us. Just very, very quickly, just to return to that scene where you're running down the stairs <laughs> and uh, you get a shoulder barge. Were you able to roll with that? Did mm-hmm. you, could you react uh, in the moment? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You did. Yeah, yeah, I think partly out of sheer terror of making a mistake, I just kept going. But right, yeah. somehow I was blessed with getting it in that moment. You know, it threw me into the scene. It didn't take me out of it, which was a frigging gift. Right, Jennifer. We've we've better come to the premise of the the podcast. Yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, it's all yes. good. So we've got. Uh, I've asked you to put uh, pick the five video games you'd like to put on your perfect console. Now, you told me on email that you're not a big player of video games, even though you are mm-hmm. a big, um, well, creator of video games. So we're gonna we're mm-hmm. gonna. This I suppose the console that we're creating here is more of a memory box for you. We're going to go through some of the some of the games that you starred in and talk about some of the memories around them. So why don't you tell us about the, yeah. the first uh, game on this, which uh, is from 1998. Metal Gear Solid. I love that game because it was so, it's such a groundbreaking game. I so enjoy listening to David Hayter talk about it much more than me because he knows so much more. David, who played the lead character, Solid Snake. Yes, yes. I loved it because it was such a crazy departure from anything I'd done before. I loved it because it was brilliant and because it was just so unique. It just had the totally different signal, if you will. You know, a totally different clarion call. And it's dark and it's mysterious and it's intense and I loved it. I loved everything about it. Do you remember, did did you have to um, audition for that role? Do you remember any of the auditions? Yes. Oh yes. Oh God. 
Yes, we audition all the time. We all auditioned for it. I remember I advocated for a couple friends of mine with the director because I knew her a little bit. And I'm <laughs> poor people around me. I'm always like, have you met so-and-so? They're awesome. You should meet so-and-so. Can they come audition? <laughs> I'm always doing that. It is always this my way. Yeah, I auditioned for it. I don't remember too much about the audition. I remember we recorded in a in a house in Hollywood that did not have proper soundproofing. And we would always have to stop for trucks or planes or whatnot. You know, boom boxes going by. Yeah. And the game director, Hideo Kojima, is sort of very, very well-known and well-regarded <laughs> game director. Was he was he there for the recordings, sort of giving you any, a bit of any it. feedback? A bit of it. Our primary contact in this situation was Chris Zimmerman-Salter. Chris is one of the directors, voice directors, who I think is responsible for a significant chunk of the tone of modern pop culture. She has guided an insane number of projects that are, are tent poles in the industry. Mm-hmm. And were you going for the role of Naomi Hunter or was it more like you just sort of gave them a performance and then you got allocated a character? Nope, it was specifically Naomi right, Hunter. Because okay. at that point, Chris knew me a bit. You know, we'd, we'd worked together for a couple of years. I'd taken her class and, uh, and we just also hit it off early on. She's one of my dearest friends. And um, I think she, she knew exactly where to put me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and were you, I mean, I guess this is a question for about Metal Gear Solid, but it's also relevant to all of your work. You know, at what point do you decide whether you're going to do your own voice or whether you're going to sort of, you know, bend it in certain ways or accentuate certain qualities of your voice? And what did you choose with Naomi? Yeah, I rarely, uh, doing my own voice is very weird and foreign to me because I just want to inhabit the character. So I look at the character and I I just, what does this character require? Naomi has, she does use her sexuality a bit for just to smooth things over. You know, it's not overt, but it's, let's just keep the ball rolling. Let's just keep things going. Let's just move forward. You know, she has that softness and that that sort of sensuality to her. But she's also, a, you know, she's a doctor. She's a scientist, you know, so she's very on point. Right, Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to get you to do that for each of your choices, I'm afraid. But uh, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll happen involuntarily. <laughs> okay, right. Let's come to let's come to some of your story then. So you you grew up in uh, in Canada, and then you moved when you were quite young. Which I mean, I guess you've you've said before it was quite a disruptive young childhood. Um, well, what was life like for you as a as a young girl? What do you recall now? Oh my goodness, complex complex PTSD is what I recall. I I was uh, actually kidnapped out of Canada just before I was two by my mom. No one had done anything wrong. She was just didn't want to <laughs> didn't want to bother. Right. And uh, took me back to the states. I moved a ton. I was the kid everyone made fun of. I had a I was bu- you know bullied like crazy, like many of us were, like bullied an insane level. Well, because you were because you were not from around there. You Probably mean? I was extremely sensitive. I was an awesome target. I cried at the drop of a hat. I also, like I said, I lived with an enormous amount of day to day trauma. So I was probably strung pretty internally. The strung tight makes it sound like I was uptight and domineering. No, I was just shredded. I was emotionally shredded. So I was a perfect target if a kid wanted to be feel powerful and and like they'd had an impact. It didn't take much. Right. Yeah. And I moved a lot and I, I just was always an outsider. Yeah. You know, I like like many of our, you know, our badges from our early days, that that one follows me still. Mm. Um, but it's my teacher, right? It's all your teacher. Mm. Yeah, my mom was uh, was not well. Very, very accomplished, but very, very not well. And uh, multiple marriages, the whole thing. So, yeah. And, you know, stories many people have, right? When you say you 
you were an outsider is that the sense that you just didn't really belong anywhere is that what you mean no. oh yeah no i mean when we we let's see we went from labrador to massachusetts to montgomery alabama i don't remember much about montgomery i know that the way my mother was wired i got in trouble whenever i bonded with anyone but i wasn't bonded to her either so i just kind of tried to not piss her off that was most of all of what my entire growing up years was organized around mm. it was very unsuccessful but it certainly was a goal so I didn't really make friends there. And then when I moved to Birmingham, I, I had a friend. I remember that. And then when I moved, we moved then to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I remember, I, again, I had a friend. Um, and then I tried to make other friends, but it just was, I didn't know how to do it. Like I, connecting with people was not something anyone had ever taught me. And in fact, they had taught me the opposite. Um, so I really enjoyed hanging out with my dog, going out in the woods. And I read like crazy. You know, I was just a book nerd who hung out with their dog and went outside and watched people yeah. be friends and wondered, how do they do that? That looks so cool. That's, I mean, it, it's <laughs> strange to hear you say that you didn't know how to make friends or connect because you're such a personable person. Like, yeah. for, I know people are listening to this in audio, but we're on video and you mm. make lots of eye contact. And of <laughs> course, your day-to-day -day job is working alongside lots of people. So yes. how, did yes. that, how did that all turn around for you? I, I learned. I just learned. I mean, I am one of the things I've learned about myself is I'm a born connector. If I see two people who should be connected, I'm like, oh my God, you know, and then I, I quickly take myself out of the equation because it's not about me, right? Um, I think it's just, you know, it's the Joseph Campbell thing, right? That um, the hero's journey, it's, it makes it sound so grandiose. It's not, but it's, I relate to what he describes, which is what I remember of that is you know, the notion, for example, of let's say a prince who has everything and then they're taken from the everything they have and thrown into the nasty forest they always avoid. And in order to get through that ordeal, they have to befriend all the gross, disgusting and terrifying things that they have always spent their life avoiding. And those things that they thought of as gross and terrifying and disgusting end up being their dearest friends who help them get back home again. And when they're home again, they actually realize what they always had. You know, so I think our adversity and our experiences of adversity, we have to befriend those things that are so difficult and so excruciating and so terrifying in order to really become fully ourselves, what we were always meant to be. And I look at, I believe the notion that you pick the family you're born into for what they can teach you sort of on a spiritual level. And I learned an enormous amount. I have an experience of humanity and being alive that is deeply informed and gives me a ton of compassion and empathy i identify most with with my i am you know indigenous uh, not obviously so I, I i read as white if you look at my face i also read as privileged i have resting privileged face i don't know why i just look, a, <laughs> look like a well-off white person but that is not my history your father was an indigenous elder wasn't he he's yes he was um you know he also appeared fairly white which was hilarious but we were significantly we are significantly native uh, in terms of our ancestry. And um, yeah, he's an Inutuvit elder. And um, anyway, I identify more with, with minority groups and with disenfranchised people than anyone else. The, the, the picture you paint of being a young girl going into the woods with your dog and reading lots of books, mm -hmm. I suppose that mm -hmm. doesn't seem like a natural path to maybe you realizing that you've got a talent for being a mimic, which I suppose is, is you know part of what you do. When did you when did you first notice that you had that talent? Oh God. It was a horrifying experience. I was in seventh grade 
And those were the years when I was in Cincinnati. I had nicknames like Dog Face, Ugly, Dork, Hail Horse. Like, oh, one time somebody threw a football. I was just standing there on the thing outside of, I think, sixth, fifth or sixth grade classroom, reading my book by myself at recess because I didn't know how to play all the games everybody was playing. And some kid takes a football to see if he could hit his target, and he had such a good arm. He threw a super strong football, hit me right in the nose, and blood just came oh my pouring gosh. out of my nose onto the concrete. I was that kid, right? So, um, I, so I was like into hiding. And so with these same kids, I'm in seventh grade, and somebody comes to the school and they're talking about old advertising campaigns that really, they're talking about advertising and slogans and stuff. And they mentioned an old campaign with the guy named Juan Valdez, and I remembered it and I knew it and nobody was saying anything. And they were like, do you remember what he says? Do you remember what he says? And out of my mouth, to my horror, flies this phrase, East Mountain Grown. And everybody <laughs> busts out laughing and turns and looks at me. And I was like, ah, I, wanted, oh, I just <laughs> what wanted to die. So my voice like leapt out and took over in that moment. You know, my ear, my father had a wonderful ear for dialects. And <laughs> my mother used to... When she 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 would uh, she was an excellent off duty drinker, which meant you know after she would show up for work brilliantly, and then she'd get hammered, and then uh, she would pretend to be from other countries sometimes, like in the parking lot of the grocery store and stuff. It was horrifying, but <laughs> you know I was surrounded with lots of creativity, lots you know in yeah, that way. So it's all going in. But yeah, it was <laughs> that was my first experience. And it was awful. It was I was just like, oh no, you just put the bullseye back on your head. Hide, hide. <laughs> it was, oh my God. Well, horrifying. I mean, this is a good good time to come to your second game, I think, because you did, in fact, do a, do a different accent to your own one for your performance in this one. Tell us about this. This is uh, a Star Wars game. What is it? Yes, Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> Oh, that was a dream. And you know, the funny thing about that dialect is, I don't know if anybody else has this. I sometimes think we, I think we all have it, but I I might be part of a group that has it, uh, which I always have all these different voices in my head. And since I was little, one of them was British and I would just hear them all the time chatting to me. And so falling into that accent was just so easy. And I I lived in that, and I loved. Where Where are you getting that from, though? Where have you heard that accent enough to so you know absorb it? Not in this planet. Look, I have a theory. The atoms that go to make up a newborn baby are billions of years old. Matter's neither created nor destroyed, right? They had a British accent. Well, we have muscle memory, right? Yeah. And so we have, therefore, some level of atomic memory. That's why certain people, I think, are naturally just good at something. How did, why did I come out of my my mother's body wanting a horse? No one in my family had a horse. I'd never been around horse. Like, where did this come from? You know, and I was, I'm, ask anybody who knows me, I'm friggin' horse crazy. <laughs> you know, like, 
I think that our atoms, I think that's why when you meet certain people, I just have this crazy theory, when you meet certain people and you're like, you know, you're my people, aside from all the obvious psychological imprints, etc., I think there's a piece of you that's like, maybe you, sh maybe your atoms are now in different bodies that used to be in the same rock somewhere, or the same animal, the same rabbit that someone ate. Like, who knows? So back to Star Wars. It was really, <laughs> it was so great. Jenny McSwain directed, Dara O'Farrell was there. I love that I've known Dara this long. It's so great. He was there and guiding us. And I remember being profoundly confused because we did all the light side stuff first. Right. And then we went back and did it again and did all the dark side. And I was like, wait, what? I'm what kind of person? Right, yeah. Oh, man, I fell in love with this character and now I'm a real jerk. So we should say it's because players can pick their responses in dialogue and they can either, and this is also happens in Mass Effect, doesn't it? You can either choose mm -hmm. to be very kind and polite and, you know, trying to get, pe get your way that way or you can be aggressive mm -hmm. and horrible, right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And um, so this character you play is a Bastilla. Uh, is that how you say say the name? Bastilla. Bastilla, yeah. Bastilla. Bastilla Sean. Give us a little mm. uh, blast of her then. Oh my goodness, it's been a long time. Well, actually, I've played her recently in the Old Republic Online, where I'm, I am my own grandmother, <laughs> because she has a, a granddaughter, Satil Sean, who I also play. <laughs> Were you a big fan of Star Wars before you got that role? Was it a big deal for you? I loved it. I really liked it. And I'll tell you what I liked best about it, weirdly enough, was Mark. I knew Mark. Mark Hamill, this I, is. I met Mark at Mark Hamill at work back in 1996. We both worked on um, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. <laughs> and he was, he's just such a lovely human being. I didn't, I didn't really connect to his, I, I knew he'd been Luke Skywalker, but that was long before the Star Wars Renaissance. I was like, oh yeah, that was such a great movie. That was so cool. That's neat. <laughs> How are you? You know, and, uh, you know, I just loved Mark because as a voice actor, he blew me away. He's so brilliant. I, I just wanted to learn everything he knew just by watching him, which is really honestly the story of every person that I work with because they're friggin' brilliant. I just loved Mark. Yeah. He's an adorable human being. I know, And I say adorable sounds diminutive, but it's not. He's a he's a lovely, gracious, kind, funny passionate, compassionate, empathetic, fun guy who lights up a room when he walks in, not by taking it over, Ew. but just by being who he is. Yeah. And then, and then he got like re-famous and I was like, oh, <laughs> get him back. We love him. We know him. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. It's, uh, you're right. Star Wars and Mark, they were, yeah, not a big deal, I suppose, in the same way that they, mm -mm. they are now no. or had been in the late 70s. His voice work was a bigger deal to me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Right. Let's uh, um, let's come back to your story then. So, so you at some point you you well, were you at school. You have this uh, <laughs> this outburst, and you <laughs> you reveal the fact that you've got this ta- this talent. At what point is that? Do you start getting paid for that? I um, had moved back to Birmingham, Alabama, and got a job at a video production house that was next door to an audio studio, and Batwell Studios, and they needed someone to come over and do a Valley Girl. And I guess there there goes my my ear for voices again. And I was like, oh my God, I can totally do that. <laughs> yeah. And so they, and they paid me like 30 or $35. And I was like, what? Because I was still in high school. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> How do you, I want to do more of this. This is really fun. And so I started bugging Greg and Courtney. Uh, my friend Jane Trexel really helped me. She was a working voice actor. And I was like, how do I do this, Jane? She was one of the lights of my, of my adolescent years, just a wonderful woman. And uh, she, you know, gave me some tips. But I really bugged Greg and Courtney about how to do it. And that's where I really learned about mentorship, you know, which later informed my creation of Skills Hub. And, and just like asking them, how do I do it? you know, paying them for their time, going and studying. And and I, I'm a pragmatist. And growing up the way I did, I had a true need for freedom and safety. And for me, I quickly equated in my fairly young years that money was freedom and safety. And I've since learned that freedom and safety lives within us. It doesn't depend on your pocketbook. No, but you needed autonomy, didn't you? And for that, you need some money, right? So you can get out of... I need some cash. Yeah, most of, yeah, and I just loved my 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 second dad used to call me the little capitalist piglet <laughs> because uh, but I, then I and this is the kind of capitalist I was. I made this whole business plan. I think it was like nine or ten. I was going to make all these pot holders with macrame because I just learned it at camp, uh-huh. you know. And I was like, all right. So I did the numbers. If I it'll cost me this much to buy the thing, it'll cost me this. I'll put it together. I'll sell it for this. I'll make this much money. Great. I get to work. I make them, and I'm like, oh, just take it. <laughs> That's the kind of capitalist I am. <laughs> Anyway, so you you get this voice acting role at the radio station, and then at some point you get selected. I think there were about six thousand people go for this role in a soap opera, Santa Barbara. Oh my God, you know about that? Yeah, how did you get that role? That's a lot of competition. It was so funny. Well, that's very interesting. This is very interesting. It was not talent or looks. I'll tell you what it was. Um, I. I only ever watched one soap opera. It was Santa Barbara, and it was because the acting on there was insane. Marcy Walker, A. Martinez, Robin Wright. She kept uh, just unbelievable acting. And I found out before they did these whole, long before American Idol, and maybe even before Star Search, um, they did these this contest. They went around the country. They went to, I think, four different cities, and they saw like 6,000 women. And I went to Atlanta to audition. And I knew about it a little over a month ahead of time. You know, we've heard my backstory. I had no confidence. I had no self-belief. I just had a ton of drive and, um, and a ton of self-loathing and flagellation and, and insecurity, right? And macrame. But I found a book by the blessing of the universe. I found a book called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter. And I read that book and it instructed me to come up with a set of beliefs that I wanted to believe about myself and things that I wanted to have happen, state them in the present tense, like like another book, Shakti Gawain's um, Creative Visualization, read them into a tape recorder three times each and listen to it twice a day. Now, get this, guys. This was back when we did this in a tape recorder and you had to get it right in one run. So I recorded all those statements in one run. It was probably like five, seven minutes long, five minutes long at least, in one run. Oh, it took me a couple tries, but I got it done and I listened to that tape and it changed my subconscious beliefs enough 
so that when I showed up, I had the courage I'd brought a demo tape to tell the producer, now get this, it's Atlanta. It's the South. There's some hot, hot, hot women in that line who know how to be hot. And it's a soap opera. And that's the home of the hot women. Like, it's a beautiful place at that time in history, in culture. That was what was valued there, right? And so I show up with my giant hair frizzy and wavy and long and a lot of it, way too much of it, wearing giant flowered baggy pants and an extra large t-shirt, black. And that was my, it was hip, but it was not hot. And so I get to the front of the line and I hand the producer, Eric, my demo. And he's like, oh, we don't need that. I said, you got to take it. And he's like, well, if if you don't take it, I'm just going to give it to somebody on the street. And he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) And, (laughs) And then I got a call back. And then they, I won. They wrote a part for me. They flew me to Orlando. We shot for a week. What a great moment. Wow. It was crazy. I, I, I have very few things on my wall. I have the box with Femshep. I have the Guinness Book of World Records. I have the New Yorker article. And I have the Soap Opera Digest interview from when I booked that thing. And, and honest to God, it was just subconscious programming. And I say that because any of you can do it. It's, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you do it overnight, but I just taught myself how and I did it and it's available to all of us. Just make sure you record the positive lines, not the uh, not the negative ones. Well, you, you record <laughs> what you want to be because you need to override all that crap that was put in you from age seven and earlier. That's all the stuff you don't want. Keep the stuff you do want and reprogram the stuff you don't want. Indeed. Right, Jennifer, let's come to your, your third game, which is perhaps the role for which you're you're best known. Tell us about this one. Mass Effect. I remember the audition. The archetypes they had were Han Solo and Ripley. And I was like, yes, I love this. And I just jumped in and gave it everything. You know, I do this for every audition. I mean, why show up if you're not going to give it everything you have? And I was lucky enough to be the one who fit the role. And it was extraordinary. Our first sessions, I remember they had already recorded Male Shepherd in Edmonton with Mark. I didn't know Mark at the time. And uh, so there was, this is what I, my first lesson in, in player characters and the demands on, on the technical engine for player characters. They played me his line and they wanted me to do it like he did it. So I did it like he did it. But what I got out of that very quickly was that's the timing they need. Right. That's just the beginning and end timing. Not the performance. So, right. So that's, that was take A. Take B. I immediately did within the same time as my as the way I wanted to do it. But I made sure it was the same time. And then take C, I would kind of tinker with it a little bit and play. So I, I gave them three options. I gave them exactly what they asked for. I gave them what I thought would be more suited to, to what I was giving them as mm-hmm. Femshep. And, and then I gave them like 
pure like, okay, if I was free and out of the box, this is what I would do. <laughs> um, so I did that on every <laughs> We should quickly explain because I think everyone knows what Mass Effect is, but you're saying Femshep, that refers to the, fem- the female um, Commander Shepard and there was also a male Commander Shepard option and players could mm-hmm. pick which one they would play as and, and all the good people played as female Shepard, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no shade to Mark. No, no Ooh, shade to Mark. Hopefully everyone gets an experience of both. <laughs> Did you ever meet yes. Mark, your counterpart? Oh, I got to meet Mark. It was so lovely. I I went up to Edmonton for um, the Bioware Christmas party and uh, I he's, he's, he's one of the most open-hearted deeply kind funny people you will ever meet and he's he is not a showboat of any flavor he's so incredibly humble he's so deeply canadian i love him <laughs> he's he's a brilliant improv comedian and his wife is a delight so i got to go to the house and meet them and then we went over to the the christmas party and had such a great time and it was beautiful oh, i love mark nice. he's i i consider him a, a dear a, a really treasured friend now, it would be remiss of me not to ask you how you went about settling on the voice for Femship. So, yeah, what what are you doing when you do her voice? What are you thinking of and what bits of yourself are you putting into it? Yeah, yeah. What what I'm putting on the shelf is any kind of emotional indulgence. Um, This is a human being who, first of all, it's a human being. So there's our first piece of definition because we live in a unit. That's the thing is what universe are you working in? Are you necessarily human? You're not you know, in a lot of these. And so, okay, number one, I'm human. Number two, I'm a soldier. And my greatest, greatest guidepost was I'm a soldier. And I have to honor that, you know, how do I move through the world? It is never about me as a soldier. It is about the mission. It is about saving people. It is about doing what's right. It's about smacking people upside the head when it's necessary because we are all here to do what's right. Because Shepard was also the moral compass. (laughs) is the moral compass of that project. And I think that's why people got so freaked out about the ending sometimes is, you know, the people who did, you know, and it's understandable, right? Because you've invested enormous amounts of time in this game and like, what? What was that left turn? You know, well, sometimes that happens, right? Yeah, I just put significant pieces of me on the shelf. There's no time for indulging in emotion. I, I remember recording the ending of three, in particular, my conversations with Garrus, and um, there was one line where I I started to cry. And I was like, nope, Shepard does not cry. That is a luxury we don't have in this universe. So I had to take a second and, you know, gather myself back together and yeah. say the words in spite of how I was feeling, which is what Shepard does. This is, this is armchair um, psychology, but it just struck me when yeah. you were saying there, you know, the way you frame that as putting parts of yourself on the shelf. And earlier on in the conversation, you described how in your childhood, there was a lot of like thought, child thought going into how do I not make my mum mad? Like, mm-hmm. do you think you were sort of trying to find roles and find which bits of yourself to sort of suppress a lot at that time? And that's why you're able to do it? I think compartmentalization, my capacity for compartmentalization is certainly overdeveloped. I once did a, uh, I was doing brain training thing with my son and biofeedback. And they start with a scan where they look at your brain and what it looks like now. So they have a before and after picture. (laughs) My brain literally has a wall between my limbic system and everything else in the front. There is a wall literally holding all that stuff back. 
You know, it, it's, it's, it blew my mind to look at that <laughs> in the picture. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting question about whether it's psychological need or whether it's simply those overdeveloped tools ended up serving of course, yeah. in a way. Yeah. I mean, my, they, my mother had a whole thing about, she was all about deep, 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 deep holes in her very substantial ego. And so very much about how it looked. So she was extremely particular about how I spoke and we lived down south. And I think that's part of what enabled me to work so quickly, mm. you know, and as a teenager was I could talk without a southern accent like that. That combined with my my training at the at the fine arts high school where we did dialect. Actually, we did dialect training and stuff there. That's where I met the British accent right there. Right, yeah. Like I already had it from my childhood, but I really fleshed it out when we did the IPA and dialect training and <laughs> Shakespeare in the accent, like the whole thing. We had to go to the library every week and look up a different word in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh-huh. <laughs> God. Very good. So all these things are going in the mix, I guess, aren't they? Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. So you, you, you talked there about being friends with uh, with Mark, the other voice actor on Mass Effect, and I know you're also friends with Nolan North, who is probably the other best known voice actor working mm. in the Western video games industry. Mm. Um, you know, the I suppose voice acting in video games, voice actors in video games, do you, do you support one another? Because it can be a slightly strange role, right? It's not like being a screen and movie actor yeah. Um, in the sense that I guess you're not always being stopped in the street, but at the same time, you know, millions of people know your voices. That's, uh, do you get support from one another and all of that? It is the most supportive community siblinghood I have ever been a part of. Because I've, you know, I've, I've been in many on-camera rooms and on many on-camera sets and and I've been in you know many, many more voice acting rooms. And it is the kind of community where one of us will go in for a role, like I'll go in for a role you know, on an animated thing or whatever, and I'll, I'll do the audition and I'll say, I'll say to them, is Gray coming in, Gray Delisle? Because I love this and I, I can't wait to hear what she does with it. Yeah. You know, because she's going to knock it out of the park or call you Walgren or whoever. Like, it's that kind of community. Like, I've been known to, and my agents would kill me, I won't do it if I'm specifically told not to. And nowadays we're told not to so much more. But I have been known to secretly message somebody and go, hey, this is going on and you're freaking perfect for it. I just ran for this. You would blow it out of the water. Find out how to get in there. You know, like I'm guilty of that. You know, I'm not going to say any more than that. I don't want to get in trouble. But it's very much a community. Very much a community. One of the other things that people know about voice acting, and, and this is, I guess, you know, with the strikes going on for writers as well, this is very much in the conversation at the moment is, yes. are people properly remunerated for the work that they're doing in these kind of entertainment industries? And that has, I would say, definitely not been the case for, for voice actors. I think in the New York piece, you said that you were once paid $1,200 to voice a game that made $217 million. Yes. Um, yes. You know, that is a pretty grotesque disparity, I would say. Um, it is. It is. And listen, though, it is indicative of what's happening in modern culture. I posted about this a while back. In the 1960s, the average CEO's salary was 20 times employee wages. In the 80s, it was 40-some times employee wages. Do you know what that gap is today? I'm guessing it's, it's a lot more. Multiples. 399 times. So for every dollar that the workaday person makes, and we are workaday people, all actors, on-camera voiceover who are not celebrities are workaday people. We make a dollar for every $399 they make. Something happened in the 1980s where company well-being was no longer defined by how's everybody doing who works here? How's everybody doing who uses our product or our service? 
And it became, how are our stockholders? Are they happy? Am I looking good? Right. Am I killing it as a CEO for our money, 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 money people? To bring it to voice acting, though, what would you like to see, ideally? to it- Residuals for games. Residuals for games, yeah. Yes. On a, sl- on a flexible structure that honors the indie developers, that honors the budgets and capacities of teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to see that. I would like to see our residual structure as on-camera actors used to really well represent us and take care of us until streaming came in, until cable came in. And it was pennies on the dollar because nobody thought cable was ever going to be anything and nobody even looked at streaming. Um, has uh, has enough time passed that you can say what that game was that uh, you were paid $1,200 for that made several billion? The the figure I heard actually was $176 million. It was Metal Gear. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned there um, some indie games. So let's come to your fourth game, which is an independent game, I think. Um, tell yeah. us about this one. The Long Dark by Hinterland Games. It is a Canadian uh, independent game done by, I, I live on Vancouver Island now, and the team that made it lived about a couple hours north of me here on the island, Raphael Van Lerup and his team at Hinterland. It's a beautiful game, beautiful visuals, beautiful story. And the cool, how it happened was um, I saw Mark Muir um, tweet about a Kickstarter and oh, nice. I was like, what is that? I want to play. I've clearly, you know, cleared my, you know, fixed my inability to participate. <laughs> I was like, I want to play. He's like, well, yeah, I'll connect you. And I was like, oh, my God, can I play? Can I play? And turns out, you know, I'm in it. Elias is in it. David Hayter is in it. And we did this Kickstarter and it was really successful. And the game is super successful. And like it, a Metal Gear reunion in Canada, in the wasteland. And really, it's incredible. And, you know, like Metal Gear Mass Effect Deus Ex Party. <laughs> and the cool thing is Mark and I play two people with a history. And you don't know what that history is until you go through the chapters. Yeah. And so to be able to work, I mean, we don't get to record together, but quote unquote alongside him is so wonderful. It's it's a beautiful game. And I, I love indies. Like, I want to pour my heart into indies out there. You guys, if you're producing an indie game, please get a hold of me. I want to know. I want to know what it's about. How can I help you? You know, I have a dream when I get some spare time, which I have none. I have less than spare time. My tank is beyond fumes right now. To can I really want to connect with like the Canadian independent game scene, the American, the UK, the South African. Like I want to connect with the independent game teams in each country. How can I? What can I do to support? How can I help? What? 
how can I uplift you guys? Because it's so cool. Oh, it's amazing. Well, I've got a feeling you're going to get some emails after this. <laughs> this comes out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer at JenniferHill.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Well, our time's running out almost, but let me, I've still got so much to ask you, Jennifer, but let's let's try and crack it. So I'll do yeah, yeah. one question, then we'll come to your fifth game. But um, I'm interested because you started working in this in this space really right at the dawn of recorded voice work in games, which, mm-hmm. which didn't really exist before the advent of CD-ROMs, I guess. Um, yeah. What? How, how has it changed, really? That, you know, you're still so active. You've, you're doing so many games at the moment. You know, you're in Overwatch at the moment. You're in Diablo 4, like, uh, that came out yeah. a couple of months ago. Yeah. Is the process hugely different to it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 25 years ago? I think it's a little bit less wild, less wild westy. You know, um, it still is that sometimes one of the things I'm very grateful for is there's a better understanding of vocal health. <laughs> I was doing, what game was I doing the other day? Was it any of those you named? No, it's, it's a different one I can't talk about, but I was doing that game and I was playing multiple characters and I was playing a gruff character, you know, I was doing one of those <laughs> and, and in battle and we were doing those lines kind of in the middle of the session. And I said to the voice director, I said, you know, these are really expensive lines um, so normally we'll do like an A and a B and go through a set or even an A, B and a C take and keep going. I said, can we restructure this a little bit? So it's not as, so we still have some voice to spend on the later lines we have to do. And he's like, absolutely. And he goes, we'll just do singles and we'll do this here and we'll do this there. And I was like, perfect. The awareness of vocal health is extremely helpful. I'm grateful for that. What do you, what do you drink in the booth out of interest? I, I mainline hot water, <laughs> just hot water. I find tea can, you know, everybody's got to find their formula. That's my happy place. Or like a, a matcha with full fat coconut milk, something that's, you know, it's either go one extreme or the other. <laughs> but I will say one of the things I love the most, and I really noticed this during um, the Mass Effect trilogy going from Mass Effect 1 to 3, in when we did Mass Effect 1, the technology, the visual technology was such that we were still in that phase and that time when we were slightly, you know, pushing the acting just a little. So it would communicate our point, you know. And by the time we got to three, we got to that beautiful place. You know, they say thought registers on camera, and it does. We're now in that time when we can allow the truth that thought registers on the mic. And you can just live. And people trust the audience to get it. And you can really just live in that character. Mm. You know, I, I got—I remember I got a, an acting scholarship to university and it was musical theater heavy. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable. This is not, the very presentational style was not my jam. And I, I eventually, I subsequently, after like a year and a half, I left and went and got a business degree because I was already working in the industry. I was like, why do I need to, yeah, I've already got, I'm already in. So I remember shortly after that, a couple, a year or so after that, I got my first audition for a film and, and I booked it and it made so much sense to me. I'm like, because when the camera's right in your face, you really can just live that moment in that, in that way that I guess doesn't make you stand out in seventh grade in front of everybody. <laughs> I don't know. Um, ironically, I've done tons of animation, which is all about like, and I play those characters like the insane, over the top, foaming at the mouth, you know, crazy people a lot. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> you know, so I've kind of found my way through all that. Yeah. Okay, Jennifer, let's come to your, your fifth game then, which is... Um Sony game from from for PlayStation Five, I believe. Uh, quite recent. Tell us about this one. Yes, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart.
rivet. What a dream. It was such a beautiful circle moment because Chris Zimmerman Salter directed it. Uh, okay. Mm. And, you know, she would say, she is, this is you. I love this because it's you. And I was like, I would just make me cry. Oh. I love Rivet because she's a fighter. You hear I go into her voice. She's a fighter, but she's hopeful, you know, and she's seen some crap, you know, but she's not letting it change who she is. And not in an, not in a, an unrealistically optimistic way. Like just no, this is the way it needs to be. And we're going to make it better. You know, and, and then Deborah Wilson. Oh my God. I love her so much. You know, we didn't get to work together, but we met after the fact, and she's just, she's, she's a walking definition of a glorious human being. So who, who does she play in the game? She's Kit. She's Kit, right, she's yeah. She's Kit. And I love, I mean, David Kay and I have worked on so many things over the years, and James Arnold Taylor, and you talk about another delightful human being, like just, and, and the team, oh my God, Nick and Max and Lauren and everybody on the team, like I'm going to miss somebody's name. I, I'll never forget when it released, I want to say it was in June. It was released in a June. And, um, well, that was a, a pandemic overlap. We started recording that pre-pandemic. And then I bolted out of L.A. I bolted. I was sitting in my kitchen counter one day, and those, those same voices that smacked me upside the head one day were like, go, now. And I was like, oh, okay, we're moving to Canada, I guess, this week. So I was planning to come back here anyway at some point. And, uh, but I had no studio. I had no studio to work in, so I in the pandemic when no one was available miraculously found the best team ever <laughs> it's you know my guy danny and his right arm sean and then luke who helps them sometimes you're quite often now it's like my team and uh, i call them my team everyone in town calls them their team because <laughs> they're so busy they can't even breathe but they built the studio for me and then they built me this place to live and then they did the rest of the house wait and, really in canada they came out and, and uh, oh yeah well i found them and i was like uh, I was FaceTiming with George Whittem, George the Tech, who, um, and uh, he, I, I, I ripped off pieces of trim from the walls and put them on the really gross carpet. And the trim was dark brown and the carpet was like pukey beige. And I, I took a picture and I laid it out in the structure I thought would work and I sent it to George. And I'm like, George, is this going to work? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he sent all these technical things. And I, I was like, okay. I was translating to, to Danny as much as I could. And then one day I was like, I, I don't even know what he was talking about <laughs> because material names are different to the U.S. and Canada, <laughs> right. right? And I finally just FaceTimed George and I handed it to Danny. I was like, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and they got it done. And I have an incredible, you know, home studio here that I love. And um, so we finished that game here in this space that I'm sitting in right now in my house, in the low, you know, the, the lower floor of my house. And um, Are you able to do all your work from there now? I, I do it all from here. It's, I love That's this studio. I, I mean, I, but I spent the money you need to spend because it's my living. I've always, I've been that way since the beginning. When I didn't have any money in LA after I moved out to LA to start my career out there, I took money I did not have and I spent it on a demo with the most reputable, good person in town because I knew I was ready. I knew I, I knew my skills were up to par because I'd been doing it for eight years before that, right? So anyway, I remember pulling into my garage one day and this incredibly lovely interview had come out in Variety that my agent sent me about Ratchet and Clank. And they, they had such beautiful things to say about my participation in it. I, I just sat in my car reading it and I was just stunned. And I, I, I thought to myself, I should just stop now. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can get any more top of my game. And then things have gotten better. I had a bit of a bump with, 
one game that came out last year. Not my work in it, just the storm around it, but it, it all worked out. What game was that? The Bayonetta 3. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. Yes, I was rather eviscerated on social media and being under a double NDA could say nothing on my own behalf. Right. Um, but it all worked out. It all, all the truth came out. Yeah. Which I was grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. It's been ratchet. That game, Rift Apart, which, and then I, you know, I came along and started doing this before we got nominated for awards, you know, before all that stuff. And. I, I think when you've been doing it for a minute and you do it well, people just expect that out of you. Yeah. You don't get awards for that. Mm. now. You just don't. And so to be recognized by the BAFTAs that year and be nominated was mind-blowing. Mm. I was like, oh, my God. You, you really feel seen in those moments in that way. You know, ultimately what matters is what's the player's experience like and is the team happy. But that was... It's nice when BAFTA noticed as well. Oh, my God. I, I, it was so cool. It was such a beautiful experience. Yeah. yeah it was, <laughs> my son was my plus one, and he went with me. And I, I never talk about my work at home, mostly because I'm under NDA all the time. <laughs> um, it was one of the first times he'd really seen, like, oh, oh, this is what you do, and this is who you are in the industry, and this, oh... Oh, that's oh, I like, great. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I like the idea that in your NDAs, there's a clause that covers your family members. That's good. No, no, <laughs> I take it that far. No, I know. We joking. used to watch. Yeah, one of the shows we watched together a couple of years ago was The Bad Batch, and like you know, we we loved that show. And then I worked on it, and I couldn't tell him for a year. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my god, I did this job today, and you're going to see it, and I'm so excited. I'm oh, so excited. Nice. And then I did a few episodes. I was like, He's like, What? Come on, it's me, Mom. I'm like, Nope. <laughs> an NDA is an NDA. It's not about you it's about me and my integrity no were you with him the first time he, he saw that <laughs> yes we watched it together oh nice yeah. what a good He's moment like, oh, that's cool <laughs> right gentlemen, <laughs> let's um let's go over your console then mm-hmm. so we've got uh metal gear solid mm-hmm. star wars knights of the old republic mass effect mm-hmm. the long dark a ratchet and clank rift apart Oof. that is a good lineup of games hey you've done some you've done some fine projects eh <laughs> feels good. I have to say that feels really good. Really good. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, I always ask my guests to give us a name for their console because, of course, this is your console that we're going to market to the world so that people can uh, play the Jennifer Hale machine. What would you like to call it? Mm. The Just Getting Started. Very nice <laughs> indeed. Well, listen, you've been, you've been so generous with your time. Um, just lastly, let me see. Are there any particular roles that you're dying to play or a particular type of person that uh, you haven't done yet in a in a video game yes i want to sing i was a singer first and uh, a rock and roll singer and um i want to sing i want to do something where i can sing i mean ideally sing and ride horses but it's hard to do that <laughs> in a video game and pcap i love me some pcap i love like we did um iron man was was pcap I uh, did God of War, PCAP, Halo, PCAP, NAC, PCAP. I freaking love PCAP. I hate the outfits, but I love... I d- I'm really sorry. I don't know. I don't know what PCAP is. Performance capture. I apologize. Oh, I see. I'm lingoing you. I apologize. Performance capture. Okay. Yes, I love performance I've capture. I've not spent enough time in LA, clearly. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. No, sorry. I apologize for using inside lingo. It's, it's uh, voice actor short speak. I love performance capture. Any of that. And I want to do... I, I'm looking forward to when my kid's a little older and, and when you're a parent, you have this, you, for me, it's really present what a tight window I have. So I don't want to do things that take me too far away, but I'm, I am very much looking forward to when that time comes, jumping back into on camera. And I really want to get uh, like sci-fi calls me, Perfect. sci-fi, sci-fi, sci-fi. I love it okay. so much. So if there's any indie game developers listening to this who are making a sci-fi adventure game featuring a horse and a singing rider, Jennifer's your gal. 
I am there. I will fight you. Give it to me. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for this, gentlemen. Just thank you so much for your work. We, many of us, appreciate it so much. So thank you. Thank you, Simon. This has been just lovely. What a fun, fun time. Thank you. Jennifer Hale, everyone. What a treat that was. Love speaking to Jennifer and hearing all her amazing memories from her long and highly distinguished career as a voice actor in Hollywood for games, for film and for TV, of course. Jennifer, Jennifer's list of credits, as I mentioned during that interview, is extremely long. I mean, just from the last few months, uh, she has appeared in, I mean... Yeah, Return to Monkey Islands, that was last year. Overwatch 2, she voices the character Ash. Uh, she is Rosa in Bayonetta 3. She was in Midnight Suns, the game um, created by my previous guest, Jake Solomon, of course. Um, she was in Diablo 4, doing those voices in Synapse. She's in Mortal Kombat 1. She was, as she said during that, in the forthcoming remake of the beloved Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. And uh, alongside all of that, just tons of animation and TV roles. So uh, a very busy, busy person. But of course, maybe she'll be in your video game. <laughs> what an offer. Oh my gosh. Uh, Jennifer did give out her email address uh, in that. So I'm assuming it's okay to make that public. Um, yeah, why don't you write to her? You can go to her website as well, um, which is jenniferhale.com. Uh, that has does have a have a book Jennifer um, slot on there. So, uh, yeah, you'll be able to make contact with her easily enough. And she is, of course, a very big supporter of independent games as well as the really big ones. So, yeah, if you're making an indie game, get in, get in contact, see if you can make something work. Please do let me know, let the podcast know if anything comes of that. Always nice to act as a matchmaker. Of course, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, previous guest of the show, the comedian Phil Wang, is set to appear in a video game um, after he was contacted by one of the, a, a developer who listens to my perfect con console. So, yeah, there are some opportunities to bring worlds together like that. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening this far into the podcast. Really appreciate it. We are well into the year now. All of the slots for the rest of 2023 are well filled up. And uh, I'm figuring out year two who we're going to have on, liaising with some fine people for that now. And uh, have got some records as well that I've also done already that will now slip into um, 2024. That's a good thing, isn't it? Nice. Uh, loads of new listeners to the podcast. If you came here because of the recent Kieran Gillen episode, then welcome. Uh, please do delve back into the back catalogue, listen to some of those episodes. I'm sure there's much there that you will find of, of interest. Uh, and if you do enjoy it, just pop along to Apple Podcasts, leave us a little review. Uh, please do that. It'll only take you 20 seconds, but it does mean a lot. Helps people to discover the show. If you're listening on Spotify, just tap the uh, tap the review button as well. If you want to get more involved in that and help to support the creation of the show, which does take, you know, a significant amount of time and effort, as you can imagine, then please head to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console. 
uh, one of uh, our fine Patreon supporters to tell me off says that I don't do enough plugs for 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 the Patreon. So um, I don't know. I t- it's awkward, isn't it? Asking for uh, asking for help, but you do get lots of benefits if you do become a supporter. It's just four pounds fifty a month, or five dollars, or whatever your local currency is. It's around that the cost of a magazine. And for that, you get some bonus episodes. You get to join the community and chat to other listeners. And uh, very shortly, we're going to be starting the voting process to crown the best console of 2023. Uh, So you'll get to take part in that as well. Um, Yeah, got some good bonus content for Patreon supporters coming up uh, in October 2023. So yeah, please do consider becoming a supporter. It would be great to have you and greatly appreciated. You can write to me, myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any uh, thoughts or suggestions for future guests. Always glad to hear those uh, and uh, I do act upon most of them, although it it, it will now take a, a long time for some of those suggestions to make it through to actual live episodes. But yeah, please do love to hear from you anyway In uh, if you just want to say hi. Uh, that's all good. Right, that's probably enough waffling on from me. Um, I'll be back again next week with one more guest with their five choices and another perfect console. Until then, have a great week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.